We are in First uh, First Timothy chapter six. Uh, we're making our way through this great letter written by the apostle Paul to his young protege Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor in the church of Ephesus, and so Paul, at the end of his life, is writing this young man a letter how he ought to conduct himself and how the church ought to get to conduct herself. And so the whole book of, or the letter of Timothy. It's how the church ought to operate. And we've said from the very beginning, and we'll end today with this idea, uh, that we're to fight the good fight of the faith. So that's what we've labeled this whole series for the last several months, is that the church is to fight the good fight of the faith. It's interesting to me that Timothy in this book is told in verse 18, the way Paul starts is also the way Paul's going to end. In chapter 1, Verse 18, he says, I charge you. And now again in chapter 6, verse 13, he says, I charge you. So this whole letter is a charge given by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And he says it in both verse 18 of chapter 1 and verse 12 of today's passage to fight the good fight of the faith. And so this morning, uh, this is fight the good fight of the faith part 2. We uh, at the very beginning of this series, we did part one. Now it's part two. But here's what we know when it comes to Scripture. This is called an inclusio. So what he does at the beginning and what he does at the end, it's called an inclusio. It's like bookends. And he's saying, these two things matter, but they matter. And everything in between are hinging on these two things. So the church is the fight, the fight of the faith. And the whole middle is the how. How do we do the fighting of the faith? This morning, this message is going to be broken down to two things. It's going to be the charge in verses 11 through 14, and then the motivation, verses 14 through 16. So the charge of the passage, and then the motivation of the passage. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into God's holy word this morning. Before I pray, I just want to say happy Father's Day to everyone in the room. I know that Father's Day can both be a blessing for some and a deep sadness for others, so we hold the space in between both of those. So we do come to celebrate uh, both uh, fathers that are here and celebrate fathers that are no longer with us. And so we want to honor both of the, those tensions, the gladness and the sadness in this great Father's Day. Let me pray for us uh, to our greatest Father. God, You are a great Father to us. So as we come today, this great Father's Day, we look to You and You alone as the greatest Father, the greatest example to us. For us as men in the room, we must look to You how to father and shepherd our, our families well. We see how You shepherded us well. You gave Your Son as a ransom for us. God, I pray that we as dads would live that same way. We would live sacrificially for our families. And that our families would be loved and cared for as much as we know that You love and care for us. I pray for us this morning as we come and dig into Your Holy Word that we would all leave here transformed by the washing of Your Word. As You tell us in the great high priestly prayer, it's through Your Word that brings sanctification. So I pray for that for us that are believers, that this Word would sanctify us, would make us more and more like Christ Jesus today. 
We also know, as your holy word says, that your word also justifies us. So for anyone here this morning that does not know you as your Lord and their Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they would respond to the calling. The same response that young Timothy did at his calling. You chose him from death to life. You continue to do that. So lead us, guide us in your holy word. I pray this in the sweet and famous name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All God's people said, Amen. It's good to be back in this pulpit. I missed you guys tremendously last week as I was filling in for a friend uh, at his church. Uh, no, I was not uh, going to have an interview at another church. I was simply filling in for my friend who was on vacation. Um, and so I'm grateful that Brother Frank filled in from this at this pulpit. Uh, that's the great thing about serving with Brother Frank. He's a trusted man and can preach the Word. And so, if you have not listened to his message from last week, I would encourage you, go and listen to that, must, that message. And we must be reminded that God continues to run after us, but our response is that we must run after Him. It was a great message. So please, if you have not listened to it, or you need a reminder of that, that God chases us and we ought to run to Him, go listen to Brother Frank um, and his message last week. So Brother Frank, thanks for filling in last week. You are a trusted and godly man. That fills this pulpit when I'm not here. Back to this morning's message of fighting the good fight. So let's look at what the Apostle Paul tells young Timothy. He tells young Timothy the charge. Under the charge, there's four things. There's four commandments that Paul is going to tell young Timothy. It would be like this, if you've ever served in the military. That when the commander, the chief, comes and gives orders, they give charges to the uh, the soldiers. And so you'll, you'll be in a debriefing room when the commander stands up and tells the, the soldiers, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. It's not just, hey, we're going to go take on the enemy, but he's going to give charges or commands to how they're going to fight the fight. Because the Apostle Paul has told young Timothy and us, the church, we must fight the fight. And so for us, as we end this letter, we'll end it next week, there's four things that he tells us to do. Four charges or four commands he tells us to do. You can highlight these four things in your Bibles. The first word is flee. The second one is going to be pursue. The, four, the third one is to fight. And the fourth one is to take hold. So give me a few moments. I'm going to break each of those four things down for us. Let's look at First uh, Timothy chapter 6. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God. Highlight those few words in your Bible. O man of God. This is the only time outside of Jesus in the New Testament that any man is referred to as the man of God. We see it throughout the Old Testament. But here is the Apostle Paul charging young Timothy and giving him great words of encouragement. Hey, though you're a young man, we saw that in chapter 4, You are a godly man. You are a man of God, which simply means you are a prophetic voice to the church, not just in Ephesus, but to the church universal. So you, young Timothy, you have a voice that needs to be heard. But in having a voice that needs to be heard, you must do these four things. And you must call the people of God to do these four things. 
Though this letter is written to young Timothy, it is written to every believer in this room this morning. These four things are true for you as a believer. The first thing he says, O man of God, O young Timothy, you must flee these things. The first charge that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy and he gives to you, we must flee things. What for, what things does the Apostle Paul tell Timothy to flee? You can find it in the previous verses. There's five things in those previous verses. Remember, two weeks ago we looked at Timothy being charged or being commanded or being told by Paul, hey, you cannot be like false teachers. And this is what false teachers look like. And this is what false teachers do. Oh, Timothy, you cannot do these things. And he tells us to flee these things. To turn and run from them. That's what the word flee means. It means you are under attack and you must turn and run the opposite direction from these things. The the five things are these. That we must not be conceited. We see that in verses uh, 2 all the way through 10. That we cannot be conceited. It cannot be all about us. That's what he has warned the young Timothy. The second thing is we cannot be greedy. The third thing is we must not ever desire to be rich. Though if riches come to us, we thank God for that, but that cannot be on our heart is to be rich. He tells us in the passage, and, and Jesus Himself says uh, about money. You cannot serve both God and money. Though God may bless you with money, our pursuit ought not to be gain or money. He says not only that, don't desire to be rich, but don't have the, the love of money. And the last one, I, I think this is the strongest of all five that we are to flee from. We are to flee from wandering from the faith. Remember, that's what happened to those teachers in Ephesus, in the church. We see that in chapter 1, that there were men, there were, there were some elders in the church that they began to be conceited, they began to be greedy, they began to desire wealth and money, and they loved money. And they wandered away from the faith. And now Paul is saying to Timothy, don't wander from the faith. Flee from wandering from the faith. You see, I think that's one of the greatest places in the American church. It brings us the most harm. That many people would say they know Christ. They come and make a profession of faith. And then over a time, their heart is drawn to other things and they flee the faith. How many of us have seen men and women flee the faith? And then the world looks at us and wonders, if what you have is so good, why are so many people fleeing from it? Why are so many people abandoning the faith? And Paul is saying to Timothy, flee from wandering from the faith. He's going to tell them the charge. And the third point, remember, was hold fast. The way we don't flee from the, flee from the faith, we must hold fast to the faith. I'm going to get there in a moment. But then he says this to Timothy. Not only are you to flee something, but catch what he says next. He says to him, flee these things. And pursue these things. My greatest fear for us is that we run from sin. And we flee things that are not of God. 
But there's no aim to what we're pursuing. So we become lost and wandering around and fleeing all these things, but we put no attention and no focus on what we are to turn from. I'm turning from this, and now we head this way, but we have no idea where we're going. We don't know what we are pursuing. If we don't know what we're pursuing, we will always be lost. What happened to the Israelites in the wilderness? They wandered around because their focus got off of what they were called to do. And that was to glorify God. And for the next 40 years, they wandered in a wilderness. And I wonder for us, Pauls Chapel, how many of us have fleed the things of the world, but we've not pursued the things of God? Now, he tells us six things that we are to pursue. That word pursue means to run after with all of our might. Don't just turn from things. But in turning from sin, we must run to things. And he gives us six things we are to run to. What the Apostle Paul says he has done in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I've fought the good fight and I've ran the race. And I've ran it well. What's he ran the race well in? The pursuit of these six things. The six things are this. Righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love. Steadfastness. And gentleness. If you look at these six things, you can break these six things and you can put them as if Paul is rewriting the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love others the way you love yourself. There's three commands in that one command. Love God, love yourself, and love others. That's what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in this passage. The first two, righteousness and godliness. That has everything to do with our personal relationship with ourself and God. Righteousness and godliness can only come from God. So as I love myself, I've got to have the characteristics of God. The word righteousness in the Greek means this. To do what is right before both God and man. Do we live righteous lives? Do we pursue righteousness? Do we run to God and the things of God? That is what the Apostle Paul means when he says, hey, you must pursue righteousness. Are you, and am I, and we the church, pursuing righteousness this morning? The second thing he says this, not only are we to pursue righteousness, but we are to pursue what? Godliness. Godliness can be defined this way. Being God-like. I'm not saying we're going to be God. I'm saying we must have characteristics that are godly. Like our lives must be so marked that we look like God, that we look like Jesus. He says to us, be holy for I am holy. Does your life and is my life marked with godliness? Anyone ever been around a very godly man or a godly woman? It's lonely up here. Anyone ever been around godly people? Like you can just be around them and it's like, man, they have sat with the Lord today. That's called godliness. Because they're so in tune with the holy God that their life 
begins to change. And then in their life being changed, when you sit with them, your life begins to get changed. Like it's very, very difficult to be around godly people and not find yourself becoming more godly. It will rub off on you. But my challenge is this. In your life, as you pursue godliness, are you rubbing off on people? Are you becoming more and more and more God-like? You see, that has to do with us, the person. As we pursue righteousness and godliness, those two pursuits can only happen from the next two. Faith and love. The word faith simply means this. A confidence in, in Christ, in God, for everything. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is this. The things unseen. Where's your faith today? He's telling us we must pursue faith. Do we have the confidence in who God says He is? Because if we don't have the confidence in who God says He is and what God says He will do, we will have no faith. You see, my, my relationship with God will determine the amount of faith that I have. Do I really believe who God says He is? Do I really believe that? Because if I really believe that, then my faith is going to be grand. Because then I can put all my confidence in God and not the things of the world. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, where is your faith? Where is your confidence? And that must be true for us. Where is your faith? And what is your confidence in this morning? Remember, he just told us at the beginning of this chapter not to put our confidence in money and stuff, but in the one who gives us the money and the stuff. And then he says this, not only are we to have pursue righteousness, not only are we to pursue godliness, not only are we to pursue faith, but we must pursue love. That word love in the Greek is the word agape. There's four different words for the word love, but Paul uses strategically the word agape. It has this idea of volition and choice. I choose love, but I'll only choose love based on my relationship with God because I know how much God loved and chose me. Let me say that again. I will only love when I understand how much God loved and chose me. Then I will choose to love other people. But it comes out of my relationship with God. So he's saying, as you pursue righteousness and holiness, then you're going to pursue faith and love. It's an unrestricted, an unrestrained compassion for God and for believers and unbelievers. Do we, church, have agape love for one another and for the world? Do we? Do I have a love for both God, believers, and unbelievers? So those are the first four. This will transition into the last three. Because when I begin to love God, I will have a love for other people. And in my love for other people, two things will happen. I will have steadfastness, and I will also have gentleness. But my steadfastness and my gentleness must flow out of love. The, the word 
steadfastness means this, a perseverance. What he's talking about is a relational perseverance. So I must continue to pursue people even when pursuing people gets difficult. Anyone ever been in that? And what Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, the church, we must have perseverance for one another and for lost people. How often do churches split because we do not have perseverance with one another? I'm telling you, I'll say it over and over. This color of this carpet is not what splits the church. It's a lack of perseverance and kindness and love for the party that splits the church. And then we blame it on the color of the walls. It's not the color of the walls. It's what's happening in our hearts that's the problem. It's not brown carpet or red carpet that's the problem. You know, the problem is me and not having a perseverance to wade through the mire and the junk with someone else and them wade through it with me. Because we all know the color of the carpet does not matter. But Satan will use the color of the carpet to leak in, to divide, so that we, the church, don't have perseverance, so that the church will die. And if the church dies, then what happens? We no longer become the salt and light of the world. And God's called us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16, to be both salt and light to the world. But that only happens through our love for God and our perseverance with, the, with one another and with the world. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And then he's saying, through your steadfastness, you must have gentleness. And when we hear the word gentle, we think of like, well, at least I do, like a child. Like, oh, they're so gentle. They're so sweet. That's not the word in the Greek. Again, this is the only place that this form of the word Gentle is used in the New Testament. It has the idea of meekness. It's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. You know what the word meek means? This is so important. We are to be gentle or we are to be meek. That word meek means to be power under submission. Who are we to submit to? God Himself. But God has called us as powerful beings to live under His submission. And when we live under His submission, then we become gentle to one another and to the world. We don't use our power to gain control. We use our meekness to demonstrate the great power of God to ourselves and other people. And so I ask you this morning, as you flee from these things, the conceit, the greediness, the desire to be rich, the love of money, wander away from the, from the faith, sin, when you flee those things, are you pursuing these six simple things? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. You see, when we flee the things of the world, and we pursue the things of God, then and only then will we be able to fight the good fight of the faith. And that's what he tells them right after he says, flee these things, pursue these things. Now the next commandment that I give to you, the next charge is to fight the good fight of the faith. He's saying this, 
that we must fight the good fight. Look, look at those two words. The word fight means to have agony. To agonize over something. That's where we get our word uh, agony from. It's from this word, this Greek word, to fight. Are we agonizing over the things of God? You see, because righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness, they are not easy things to come by. Anyone ever thought, man, gentleness is so easy? It's like drinking coffee. That's tough. We've got to fight for these things. But you've got to, I've got to, we the church have to fight for righteousness. Because we believe that we live in a world that fights against righteousness. Turn on the TV when you leave here. I mean, get in your car and turn on the radio. You don't have to get to your house. It's going to cost us a lot. We must agonize over righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. But we are to fight the fight. And look at the adjectives that you use about fighting, what kind of fight it is. One four-letter word. It is a good fight. How many of us have gotten to the, into fights that are not good fights? Okay, I'm the only one. Huh? Lonely again. We have all gotten to the fights that are not worth the fight. But, but the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, saying to us, the church, this fight that I'm calling you to, it is worth it. This is a good fight to fight. Because in this fight, everything in the world hinges on it. Do we realize that? This fighting of the good fight of the faith, the world hinges on us fighting this fight of the faith. The salvation of the world hinges on us, the church, and fighting this good fight of the faith. It's a good, honorable, worthwhile fight. And He's called us to fight the fight. He's saying to Timothy, you must live your life in such a way that defends the faith. You see, when you flee these things, you pursue these things, then you're fighting the good fight of the faith. What, what, what he's saying to young Timothy is what matters here. Is both your orthopraxy and your orthodoxy, they both matter. Like he's saying, you must defend the faith. He's been talking about that for the last five chapters. That is our orthodoxy. What we believe to be true about who Jesus Christ is. He says that in verse 13. He's going to go back and say in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things of Jesus Christ, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good profession. Remember the profession that Christ made about himself. I am the King of Kings. Who you say you, you say I am, that is exactly who I am. I am the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I am the Savior of all. That is what we must herald, we must protect, we must fight for. That we live for Christ the King. And we must fight that with everything that we have. Because we have a world that says, no, no. Jesus was just a good man. Jesus was just a kind man. Or Jesus was a lunatic. No, but we must fight the good fight about our doctrine. Our doctrine is what sets us apart from every other world religion that we have a God that's in three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father sent God the Son to redeem us. 
That's what sets us apart. That's our doctrine. Do you know what healthy doctrine is? Is what he's saying to Timothy. If you know what good doctrine is, then your life will show what your doctrine says. That's your orthopraxy. What you know must be dictated and shown by what you do. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I wonder how many of us have either healthy orthodoxy, but no orthopraxy. We say we love Jesus, but our life doesn't show it. My other great fear for us is that we have healthy orthopraxy, that we live good lives, but it's not in our good lives living that gives us any orthodoxy. If I just live a good life and I don't believe in Jesus Christ, then I am doomed to hell. But I'd venture to say this, because this is what God's Word says. If I just simply say I believe in Jesus, but my life doesn't look different, then you're doomed to hell just as much as the next guy that says they live a good life. They must be coupled together. A healthy orthodoxy must match my my healthy orthopraxy. What I say I am and how I live, they have to match up. Or I'm going into a world that the world would question everything I say I believe. Do we live that way? That's what Paul is saying. You want to know how to fight the good fight? Let your orthodoxy and your orthopraxy match up. Because it's worth the fight. We must fight the good fight. And then he gives us the next thing. How come? In verse 12, how do we do this? How do we fight the good fight? We hold fast to our confession. What Paul is saying and reminding young Timothy, he's not talking about his professional confession. He's not saying to him, hey, you must get saved again. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying to you is you must grab on and hold tight to that profession that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you better never let go of it. Hold fast to your confession. No matter what happens in your life, will you and will I, the church, hold fast to the confession. And then he tells us in verse 13, remember Jesus Himself held fast to His confession. And He went through way more hell than you and I will ever go through. And He never let go. I wonder, church, are we holding fast to our confession that Jesus is who He says He is and what Jesus will say He'll do for us? Hold fast. I promise this. In your life and in my life, there are going to be moments You are going to be walking through hell, about to walk in hell, or just walking out of hell and about to walk into hell. And those are the times that we want to let go of our faith and take things into our own hands. And Paul is saying to Timothy, hold on, man, hold on, hold on, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast, never let go. I wonder, church, has there been any of us in here let go. It got too hard. The light got dimmer. What we were hoping for didn't come through. What we were praying about didn't happen. The list goes on and on. I've seen so many people they get diagnosed with cancer or someone in their family gets diagnosed with cancer. And the thing they do, what they need to do first is hold on to God. 
But what do they do? They let go of God and go try to figure it out on their own. They lose a job. They lose a girlfriend. They lose a wife. They lose a spouse. They let go of their profession of who Christ is. And Paul is saying to Timothy, Paul is saying to us, let us hold fast to the faith. And now, he gives us the reason that we must flee. We must pursue. That we must fight. And that we must hold on. What is our motivation? Because if your motivation is anything other than these next two and a half verses, I promise you this, you will let go. You will not fight the fight. You will not pursue. And you will not flee with all of your mind. And what does He say to us? In verse 14, 15, and 16. I'll start in the middle of verse 15. He says, He who is blessed and only. This is our motivation. We do this for the one who is blessed. And then He gives us four things. We do this for the Sovereign, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, who only has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. The four things, our four motivations must be first this. Do you and I believe that we serve a Sovereign Ruler. That word sovereignty in the text is so important. That word sovereignty means this, that He is in control of all things at all times. Nothing gets through His grasp that He's wandering around heaven wondering, how did that happen? No, He is sovereign in control of all things. From the moment that grass begins to grow to the moment your salvation begins to grow and happen. That's the sovereignty of God. You see, when we have a right understanding of who God is, then we will flee the things of the world. We will pursue the things of God. We will fight the good fight. And we will lay hold to the things God has laid hold to. But it does not start with those things. It starts with our understanding of who God is. And God first and first alone is sovereign over all things. Because in God's sovereignty, He's love. In God's sovereignty, He's mercy. In God's sovereignty, all other attributes of God flow out of His sovereignty. Do we believe that, church? It's getting hot in here. You see, my great fears, we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, but we'll believe in the goodness of God. Well, God is good whether you live or die or have cancer or don't have cancer because of His sovereignty. Not because of what's happened or not happened to you. It's the sovereignty of God. He's in total control. That's including your salvation. He, it's what He just told young Timothy in the previous verses. Remember the call that you've had on your life. He did the calling. In His sovereignty. Do we believe God is sovereign? Do we believe that God is King of kings and the Lord of lords? Not a king, not a Lord, but the King and the Lord. That word the is so important. Not a, but the. He's sovereign over all things. 
There is no other throne but His and His alone. And He will not share it because He's sovereign. The second one is this. Not only is sovereign, but He's immortal. He's got no beginning and He's got no end. And if He's immortal, then that means we get our immortality from the immortal one. I will only have everlasting life because it comes from the one who has life to give. I don't sustain myself, but the sovereign God sustains me. I only have breath and life today because of the immortality of God. Because man, I am doomed if God runs out. I am doomed if God dies. Because if God dies, then I'm following right behind. Because He is the sustainer of all things in His immortality. He doesn't need a recharge button. He ain't a battery. Ain't no replacement. He has always been and will always be. And, and there's no insufficiency in Christ. He doesn't have a meter that runs low. It's always on full. Because He is self-sustaining. Praise God for that. The next two are scary, but so true. Not only is He sovereign, not only is He immortal, but this is what it says. He is unapproachable. You know why God is unapproachable? Now, you might be saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. No, no, God is unapproachable. You cannot go approach God. Let me say that again. In and of yourself, you cannot go in the Holy of Holies. You know what happens if you go in the Holy of Holies without something? You will die. Remember what Moses said on the, on the top of the, the mountain? I just want to see you. And God said, man, I, you can't do that because your face will fry off. You'll die. I'll let you see my backside for just a glimpse. God is unapproachable. He's unapproachable because of His holiness. Because He knows this, that if you and I walk into the, the heavenly of heavenlies with sin, you know what sin is going to be consumed by? The holiness of God. I don't care if you have 1% sin or 99.9% sin. You will be obliterated. He is not approachable. But here's the promise by God in this text and text all over the place. The only way that we have the opportunity to approach God is this. Through invitation and invitation alone. It's His calling on your life and on my life that gives me the ability to approach a holy God. Because it's in that calling. Let me say that again. It's the effectual calling on God's and His life and in my life that I get to approach the throne room of God every single moment of the day. Without that calling on my life, I am doomed. And so, He's unapproachable. And here's the last thing. He is also invisible. No one can see Him. can't see God. Again, I'm telling you, these last two are scary. But they're so, so good to be reminded of. God is unseen by humans until God does one thing. Reveals Himself to humans. I cannot see God on my own. 
God must reveal Himself to me. And again, it goes back to one small word in the text. Turn one page over. I want you to begin to look for this word throughout the Bible. Take hold of your eternal life. To which what? You have been called. It's God's calling on your life and on my life that I have eternal life. There is nothing in and myself that I did to choose God's calling. Romans is so clear of 7, 8, and 9. It's so clear that I did nothing. I was an enemy of God. And yet while an enemy of God, God sent His Son to die for me. And that God in sending His Son to die for me, then He in His his own will, in His own sovereignty, called me from darkness to light. I did not choose that. Nor did you. There's nothing in you. There's nothing in me. There's not an ounce of goodness, He tells us. There's not one ounce of goodness in us that we would choose God. We must have been chosen by God despite ourselves. And then when we understand who God is, the sovereign reign of God, the immortality of God, the unapproachability of God, the invisibility of God, but then that God called us, we will then do what He says for us to do in the last half. It will always lead to this. To Him be honor and eternal dominion forever. This will lead us to our eternal worship of God. And I wonder, church, do we not worship God the way that this passage talks about because we ultimately don't know who God is. And if we don't know who God is, we won't worship God, but then we will not do the charge that Paul is instructing young Timothy. We will not flee the things of this world. You see, I don't want to do sin not because it's bad, but because it it wrecks havoc on my relationship with God. Me not sinning is directly related to who God is, not who Todd is. And my pursuit of holiness and righteousness and goodness and kindness and steadfastness isn't about what's in me, but it's about what God has implanted in me. I pursue those things because of Him again. And then I'll fight the fight, not because I want to fight a fight, because I see that God is wanting to use me in a world, so I'll fight because He, the great commander, has called me to fight. And then I'll lay hold to my great confession. Not because it's anything that was done in myself. But it's this precious gift that God's given to me and given to you. And He's given me this great gift that's undeserved. Will I not want to lay hold to it and never let it go? It only comes out of how we worship God. Who God is. Let us fight the good fight of the faith. The fighting good fight of the faith starts with a healthy, proper understanding of who God is. And fighting a good fight of the faith will start. You know your training ground? It's how you worship a holy God. 